Welcome to Monticello Podcasts, where we look at various aspects of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, and the work of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has owned and operated Monticello since 1923. I'm Chad Woolerton, Monticello's webmaster. One of the more amusing stories in Jefferson's life was his quarrel with the French naturalist Comte de Buffon about the relative sizes of European and North American life forms. Buffon had argued that life in the New World was smaller and inferior to that in the Old. Jefferson thought the assertion absurd and insulting, and he took glee in pointing out evidence to the contrary at every opportunity. So imagine Jefferson's excitement when he received the bones of an unidentified animal that included a claw of unprecedented size taken from a cave in Virginia. Last fall, speaking at our Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies, author and Monticello interpreter Rick Britton detailed the discovery and identification of the new species, which Jefferson first thought to be a giant lion and is now known as Megalonyx jeffersoni, an extinct giant ground sloth. I hope you enjoy this piece um, on the megalonyx. It's called a tremendous animal of the clawed kind, and as you'll see in a moment, it's tremendous on purpose. It, it was misspelled. A tremendous animal of the clawed kind. I hope you I hope you enjoy it one hundredth as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. Despite the termination of the French and Indian War in 1763, Native Americans from the Ohio country continued to raid into the northern section of Virginia. Particularly vulnerable was the sparsely populated region between the Monongahela and the north branch of the Potomac. In 1764, Major George Wilson of the Hampshire County Militia, a native of County Tyrone, Ireland, known for his aggressiveness, led a company of militiamen into this mountainous district in pursuit of Indians who had raided the settlement at Welton's Meadow, Hampshire County. Near the Cheat River, a tributary of the northward-flowing Monongahela, the Virginians attacked and killed three of them, wounding several others, and retook a prisoner together with a large quantity of plunder. Major Wilson, accompanied by John Davies, returned to the Cheat River Valley in 1765 in search of game. Evidently, however, some form of beastly fauna was stalking them. Encamped alongside the rushing current, Wilson and Davies were visited by a creature, something monstrous that the seasoned frontiersmen were unable to identify. In the nighttime began their recital of the event. Something approached their camp with astonishing roaring and very much alarmed them. Their dogs also shrunk and lay down at their feet, refusing to bark, as it drew nearer, its cry became, in their opinion, as loud as thunder, and the stomping seemed to make the ground shake. The darkness of the night prevented their seeing their enemy, though they stood long with their arms to defend themselves. They hoped to see its tracks in the morning, but in this they were disappointed. Not a sign was to be found. This account arrived at Monticello on July 26, 1796, 31 years later in a letter from Colonel John Stewart of Greenbrier County, Virginia, west of Lexington. Thomas Jefferson found the story intriguing. What made the communication even more interesting, however, was that it also announced Stewart's dispatch to Monticello of another set of rather large animal bones excavated from a Greenbrier County cave not five miles from Stewart Manor, his limestone mansion. The first batch had arrived at Jefferson's home three months earlier. The well-preserved condition of these oversized bones and claws, combined with an assortment of facts and amazing backcountry yarns, 
led Colonel Stewart, along with his friend Archibald Stewart, to believe that, as he noted to Jefferson, such a creature yet exists. Furthermore, thought the Stuarts, this behemoth that roared like thunder and shuddered the very earth with its tread was a massive lion. Perhaps surprisingly, Jefferson agreed. And the exchange of letters between the three over a period of 10 months from April of 1796 to the following February led Jefferson to produce a fascinating paper for the American Philosophical Society, the nation's foremost scientific organization. This piece was later styled the signal gun of American paleontology. Jefferson, it will be remembered, had formally resigned as George Washington's Secretary of State on December 31st, 1793. Over the next three years, his retirement from politics, Jefferson traveled from Monticello but once, making an eight-day trip in June of 1794 to Richmond and Eppington, the Epps family estate. During those intervening years, among a myriad of other matters, Jefferson turned down an offer of a special mission to Spain, began his pulling down at Monticello, preparatory to putting up, and planted over a thousand peach trees between his fields. He also experimented with his mathematically perfected moldboard plow, as well as with two threshing machines, and established a nailery on Mulberry Row. This idol was ended in 1796, however, when the Republicans decided to run Jefferson for the presidency. Further clouding the political horizon, in April of that year, he penned a strongly worded letter, a private letter, to Philip Matzai, the publication of which effectively ended his relationship with George Washington and enraged the Federalists. On December 31st of that year, he learned from James Madison that his electoral count would almost certainly tally second to that of John Adams. Jefferson needed to prepare himself to accept the country's second office. It was during this tumultuous period, therefore, that Jefferson corresponded with the Stuarts concerning the Greenbrier County bones. As will be shown by the evidence, he jumped at the opportunity to participate firsthand in the expansion of science. The pursuit of science, of course, was one of Jefferson's greatest delights, and he had been a member of the American Philosophical Society headquartered in Philadelphia, the nation's capital, since 1780. The first salvo in this remarkable series of letters, one from Colonel John Stewart, dated April 11, 1796, had arrived at Monticello on May 12th. Jefferson was familiar with Stewart due to the latter's involvement in Virginia politics. Born in the Shenandoah Valley in 1749, John Stewart, at age 20, had been among the first settlers of Greenbrier County, beyond the Alleghenies. Serving as a militia officer in Lord Dunmore's War, Stewart later became county clerk, Greenbrier's representative to the Virginia House of Delegates, and its delegate to the 1788 Virginia Convention to ratify the Constitution. As fearless a hunter as ever chased an elk, Colonel John Stewart was a wiry, dark-eyed Scotch Virginian of more than ordinary cultivation. Being informed you have retired from public business and returned to your former residence in Alvermall, wrote Stewart, and observing by your notes your very curious desire for examining into the antiquities of our country, I thought the bones of a tremendous animal of the clawed kind, lately found in a cave by some saltpeter manufacturers, might afford you some amusement have therefore procured you such as were saved. I do not remember to have seen any account of such an animal which probably was of the lion kind. I am induced to think so from a perfect figure of that animal carved upon a rock near the confluence of the Great Kanawha, 
which appears might have been done many centuries ago. Other bones of human creatures have been found here in caves of a surprising size and uncommon kind some years ago, but none are now to be got. If these should be worthy your observation, it would give me much pleasure to hear conjectures, and I shall be happy at all times to communicate anything from here you might desire to know. And I remain, with very great respect, your most obedient, humble servant, John Stewart. Before Jefferson could respond or even properly analyze the accompanying bones, he received another related missive from his good friend and political agent in Augusta County, Archibald Stewart. Tall of stature and dignified in appearance, the master of an estate spanning over 2,700 acres, Archibald Stewart had been born in 1757. After studying briefly at William & Mary, this Stuart participated in the 1781 Battle of Guilford Courthouse as an aide to Major General Nathaniel Green, then read the law under Jefferson himself. Following service in the Virginia legislature, Archibald, like John Stuart from Greenbrier, was elected in 1788 to the state's constitutional convention. I have just returned from the county of Bath, wrote Archibald Stuart on May 15th, where I saw a Mr. Cavendish from Greenbrier who tells me that some people who are making saltpeter in a large cave have found a bone of the toe of some animal eight or ten inches long and half as thick as his wrist. He has promised to send it to me, and soon I shall receive it. I shall forward it to you by the first safe opportunity. Obviously, news about the find was getting around, and the Greenbrier County giant was creating quite a stir. Also stirred up was the former Secretary of State. The discovery had electrified the 53-year-old's curiosity and granted him a welcome diversion from the threatening political storm clouds. On May 26, Jefferson penned animated responses to both of the Stuarts. In the first, to Archibald, Jefferson noted that John Stewart had written him and sent him bones. These, he wrote, were too extraordinary in themselves not to excite the strongest desire to push the inquiry after all other remains of the same animal. The language of the second letter, however, was even more spirited. This animal is certainly hitherto unknown, wrote Jefferson to John Stewart, and seems from the dimensions of these bones to have the preeminence over the lion which the mammoth has over the elephant. They furnish a victorious fact against the idle dreams of some European philosophers who pretend that animal nature in the new world is a degeneracy from that of the old. I consider these bones a great acquisition and shall make a point of communicating the discovery and description of them to the learned on both sides of the Atlantic. I only defer it till I can learn whether a hope exists of finding any other of the bones, as I wish that the first information should be exact and as complete as possible. Has there ever been any other remains of this species found anywhere? I must look to you, sir, to complete the knowledge of this animal for us as you have begun it by giving me all the further information you can and sending what other bones can be got of it. In, this, in his statement regarding European philosophers, Jefferson was referring mainly, of course, to the obnoxious Eurocentric theories posited by French biologist and cosmologist Georges, and you'll pardon my French, please, mm -hmm. Georges uh, Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon. Keeper of the King's Garden and director of the Royal Museum, Buffon's comprehensive work in natural history, uh, his, um, 
Histoire Naturelle, eventually ran to 44 volumes, distinguished him as the 18th century's leading naturalist. Jefferson had taken on Buffalm's unenlightened point of view in his Notes on the State of Virginia, published in the previous decade, but this 1796 note to John Stewart revealed that he was still seeking to crush Buffon's presumptions eight years after the Frenchman's passing. In the letter, Jefferson also disclosed his intention to discover everything possible about the original owner of the Greenbrier County bones and write a detailed essay describing the extant bones and claws. To that end, he asked for more information. Any other remains, of course, would help Jefferson reconstruct the skeleton and help him estimate the animal's size. He mentioned deferring until he could learn more, but evidently his excitement got the better of him, for the following was written on July 3, 1796, to David Rittenhouse, president of the American Philosophical Society. A mathematician and astronomer, Rittenhouse had constructed two famous clockwork orreries, independently discovered Venus's atmosphere, and built, perhaps, America's first telescope. The two had met in Philadelphia when Jefferson was attending sessions of the Continental Congress. I think it proper to mention to you, wrote Jefferson, a discovery in animal history of which I hope ere long to be enabled to give to the society a fuller account. Some makers of saltpeter found some of the bones of an animal of the family of the lion, tiger, panther, etc., and have now in my possession the principal bones of a leg, the claws, and other phalanges, and hope soon to receive some others. Its bulk entitles us to give to our animal the name of the great claw, or megalonyx. The whole of the bones will be deposited with the society. Unfortunately, Rittenhouse, who had headed the society since 1791, had just recently passed away. The reply came to Jefferson, therefore, from Rittenhouse's nephew, physician, botanist, and society curator, Benjamin Smith Barton. A graduate of the College of Philadelphia and later one of its instructors, Barton in 1785 had accompanied Rittenhouse on an expedition to survey Pennsylvania's western boundary. We have lost one of the wisest and one of the best of our men, Barton wrote Jefferson on August 1st. Even his country must feel it. The fourth volume of the transactions of our philosophical society is now in the press. Your account of the bones lately discovered will be very acceptable to us. It will be in time if we receive it within the term of five or six weeks from this time. Enclosed with the letter was an essay by Barton entitled, A Memoir Concerning the Fascinating Faculty Which Has Been Ascribed to the Rattlesnake and Other American Serpents. He was interested in Jefferson's thoughts on the subject. Founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1743, the year of Jefferson's uh, birth, coincidentally, the American Philosophical Society had completed its headquarters on Independence Square Philosophical Hall in 1789. The association's monograph, Transactions of the American Philosophical Society, commenced publication in 1771. The promoting of useful knowledge in general noted the very first issue, and such branches thereof in particular being the express purpose for which the society was instituted, the publication of such curious and useful papers becomes, of course, one material part of their design. Jefferson had just such a curious paper in mind, and the note from Barton announced his first deadline, five or six weeks from this time, meaning at the latest, the middle of September, 1796. But Jefferson wanted more information and more bones, before putting pen to paper. 
Archibald Stewart raised his expectations as to the existence of more remains in a letter written August 19th. After telling Jefferson that he had visited his friend Colonel John Stewart, he noted that an 18-inch long piece of bone, supposed to be from the thigh bone, had been used in the caverns by the saltpeter manufacturers to prop up one of their hoppers. This bone was carried away, wrote Archibald, but as John Stewart has offered a reward for it, he still hopes it will be recovered. I find many of these bones have been carried through the county of Greenbrier and some into Augusta. The latter I hope to procure. While Jefferson eagerly awaited the arrival at Monticello of a megalonyx thigh bone, he was contacted again by Barton. Writing on September 5th, Barton urged him to send his memoir soon, but then remarked, contradictingly, that we are slow in our motions. The upcoming volume of transactions would not be closed until the first week in October. Barton's postscript, by the way, uh, told of his discovery just outside of Philadelphia of a new species of meadow jumping mouse he called Dippus americanus. His write-up would appear in Transactions. In Jefferson's response of October 10th, several days past the second deadline, he wrote that with the expected megalonyx thigh bone added to those already collected, he hoped to divine the actual stature of the animal instead of calculating it on the principle of ex pede herculum, from the Latin meaning judging Hercules by his foot, in other words, inferring the whole from an insignificant part. Herein, Jefferson also thanked Barton for the rattlesnake essay, saying that I am persuaded you have resolved the problem truly. Unfortunately, when it came to eventually estimating the Greenbrier gargantua's size, ex pede herculum was to be the order of the day for Mr. Jefferson. The elusive thigh bone never materialized. John Stewart, after interrogating the people at the cave, as he called them, which I thought was pretty amusing, the people at the cave, and vainly sifting through the peter dirt, notified Jefferson in a letter dated January 16, 1797, that the thigh bone is mislaid and it cannot be found again. It was the receipt of this missive on February 6th that finally prompted Jefferson to compose, over the next four days, his essay on the Great Claw, or Megalonyx. Dated February 10, 1797, it was eventually titled, A Memoir on the Discovery of Certain Bones of a Quadruped of the Clawed Kind in the Western Part of Virginia. Meanwhile, Philadelphia was abuzz thanks to a letter passed around by James Madison that Jefferson would accept the position of vice president. There had been some question as to what would actually take place. The American Philosophical Society was quick to act. The Philosophical Society proposed to place you in the chair vacated by the death of Mr. Rittenhouse, wrote Dr. Benjamin Rush on January 4, 1797. We shall expect you to preside in our winter meetings. A signer of the Declaration of Independence, Dr. Rush taught medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and was one of the society's vice presidents. It was a great opportunity for the American Philosophical Society. Thomas Jefferson, one of the country's greatest patrons of science, was about to become vice president of the United States. In that role, while simultaneously president of the society, Jefferson could greatly advance the goals of the scientific savants seated at Philadelphia. 
In, his, in its official confirmation, the society reported its satisfaction to have, as its newly elected president, a philosopher by whose genius and knowledge our national name will preserve a distinguished place in the annals of science. In his response, Jefferson referred to this election as the most flattering incident of my life. Unfortunately, Jefferson was not as enthused over the results of the national election. There was one consolation, however. He had escaped becoming president at a moment when the storm is about to burst, a reference to the threat of war with France. If I am to act, however, he noted to Dr. Benjamin Rush, a more tranquil and unoffending station could not have been found for me, nor one so analogous to the dispositions of my mind. It will give me philosophical evenings in the winter and rural days in the summer. Then Jefferson's thoughts turned to the season's second most engrossing subject, the exaggerated size of the Greenbrier County bones. What are we to think, wrote Jefferson to the good doctor, of a creature whose claws were eight inches long when those of the lion are not one and a half inches, whose thigh bone was six and a quarter inches in diameter when that of the lion is not one and a quarter inches? Were not these things within the jurisdiction of rule and compass and of ocular inspection, credit to them could not be obtained. What Jefferson thought was clear. The megalonics was a carnivore over three times as large as the king of the jungle, big enough to bring down a mammoth. His megalonics memoir complete, Jefferson packed it along with the precious fossilized bones and his traveling kit. Departing from Monticello on February 20th, 1797, he traveled northeastward through frigid weather. After boarding a public stage in Dumfries, Virginia, Jefferson's 10-day journey took him through Alexandria, where he received official notification of his election as vice president, a certificate, Washington, the federal capital still under construction, then northward to Philadelphia, the temporary seat of power. He arrived on Thursday, March 2nd, welcomed by the customary artillery salute from a local company and a large banner reading, Jefferson, the friend of the people. Uncomfortable thanks to the unwanted public attention he had hoped to arrive undetected, Jefferson immediately paid his respects to John Adams, then procured accommodations convenient to both Congress Hall and Philosophical Hall on Independence Square. The induction ceremony at Philosophical Hall took place the next evening, Friday, March 3rd, surrounded by the brightest scientific minds America had to offer, both new friends and familiar correspondents. Jefferson took the chair left empty by Rittenhouse's death. Then the meeting was adjourned until March 10th on the account of a communication to be made before Mr. Jefferson leaves the city, a cryptic notation in the society's minutes, to be sure, but the end result was clear. Jefferson's paper would be presented one week later. The Megalonics memoir ran to over 4,000 words. Two years later, when volume four of Transactions was finally cranked out of the press, it appeared as item number 30, pages 246 to 260, immediately preceding a letter from Mr. John Heckenwelder to Benjamin Smith Barton, M.D., containing an account of an animal called the Big Naked Bear. Volume 4 was quite an issue. It also featured general principles and constructions of a submarine vessel by David Bushnell of Connecticut, 
a piece by Dr. Rush which proposed that the black color of the Negroes is derived from leprosy, and another from Jefferson, his description of a moldboard of the least resistance. Jefferson commenced his paper by detailing how the bones were discovered in a cave belonging to a Frederick Cromer, then thanked Colonel John Stewart of that neighborhood for fording them to Monticello. The complete collection consisted of a small fragment of the femur, femur or thigh bone, being in fact only its lower extremity, a radius perfect, meaning a forelimb segment from the thumb side, an ulna or forearm perfect, except that it is broken in two, and three claws and half a dozen other bones of the foot. Jefferson also listed the thigh bone that he had never seen, as described by John Stewart, about a foot in length and four and a quarter inches in, di in diameter. Excuse me. This large bone segment, once seen but unfortunately lost, was critical to establishing the creature's size. The elusive femur was ignored, of course, when the existing bones were later analyzed by two of the world's leading anatomists, Caspar Wister and Georges Cuvier. Jefferson's misidentification of another bone in his original draft, a radius he thought was a tibia, may have been the reason the society's meeting was adjourned for a, for a week. This mistake generated a number of erasures and corrections throughout the manuscript. Although he possibly discovered the tibia error on his own and made those alterations to the draft before his departure from Monticello, wrote Barbara Oberg, editor of the papers of Thomas Jefferson, it seems likely that he only learned of his mistake when the fossils were seen in Philadelphia by a more expert anatomist such as Wister. Born in Philadelphia, Wister had studied medicine in his native city as well as in London and Edinburgh, then returned to Philadelphia to teach. Elected to the American Philosophical Society at age 26, he became its curator in 1793 and one of its vice presidents two years later. Following Jefferson's resignation in 1815, Caspar Wister became the society's fourth president. After a series of tables wherein Jefferson compared the megalonyx bones with those of the lion, according to the measurements provided Buffon by his assistant, Louis-Jean-Marie Daubenten, who had expertly uh, dissected 182 species of quadrupeds, he asked two very pertinent questions. What is become of the great claw? Some light may be thrown on this by asking another question. Do the wild animals of the first magnitude fix their dwellings in a thickly inhabited country? To this, Jefferson responded in the negative, albeit doubtingly, and cited examples from the 16th and 17th centuries to prove that an animal resembling the lion seems to have been known in his part of America. In the present interior of our continent, he continued, there is surely space and range enough for mammoths and megalonyxes who may subsist there. Our entire ignorance of the immense, immense country to the west and northwest and of its contents does not authorize us to say what it does not contain. Next, Jefferson launched into his rendition of the stories sent him by the Stuarts. He included the tale about the rock carving alongside the Great Kanawha and the now 32-year-old secondhand yarn about Wilson and Davies and their unexpected nighttime visitor on the banks of the Cheat River. These he supported by quoting from several travelogues which claimed that hunters, horses, and dogs were seized with terror when approached or even observed by large felines. 
In fine, Penn Jefferson, the bones exist, therefore the animal has existed. The movements of nature are in a never-ending circle. The animal species, which has once been put into a train of motion, is still probably moving in that train. For if one link in nature's chain might be lost, another and another might be lost till this whole system of things should evanish by piecemeal. This, of course, was Jefferson's argument against species extinction based upon the ancient chain of being concept which dated back to the Middle Ages. This hierarchical theory regarded the created universe as an infinite set of attached links connecting the very lowest order of nature with mankind, the angels, and even God himself. As the chain represented harmony in the natural world, the loss of any one link, according to the theory, would ultimately lead to chaos. Jefferson had first mentioned this anti-extinction thesis in Notes on the State of Virginia. If this animal then has once existed, concluded Jefferson, it is probable that he still exists. It is probable that the great claw has at all times been the rarest of animals. Hence, so little is known and so little remains of him. His existence, however, being at length discovered, inquiry will be excited and further information of him will probably be obtained. Jefferson had no way of knowing how accurate that statement was or how quickly he would learn about a closely related Leviathan. If we assume that Jefferson completed his Megalonyx monograph on February 10, 1797, as it is dated, then the further information that he no doubt sought came to him quite accidentally, providentially, one could say, less than one month later. Be careful what you wish for. But first, there was a fairly important matter to attend to, his inauguration as Vice President of the United States. This ceremony took place in Congress Hall in the Senate Chamber on the second floor. Just after 10 a.m. on Saturday, March 4th, Thomas Jefferson, dressed in a long, single-breasted frock coat, his powder-haired, his powdered hair tied in a queue, took the oath of office, then briefly addressed the assemblage. He declared his zealous attachment to the Constitution of the United States, called its preservation the first of duties, and amicably referred to Adams as the eminent character with whom he had a cordial and uninterrupted friendship. It was over in a twinkling. Jefferson assumed the second office, an, anx an accident away from higher and more important functions, as he noted in his speech, then made the briefest of appearances at the perfunctory festivities. Then he was on his own in the nation's largest city, an ardent bibliophile in a town known for its many bookstores. <laughs> his next pressing engagement was the presentation of his paper on March 10th, six days away. It was during this period, presumably while perusing a bookshop, that Jefferson received something of a shock. He stumbled upon a London periodical, monthly magazine, and British register for 1796 that included a two-page uh, two piece entitled, Notice Concerning the Skeleton of a Very Large Species of Quadruped, Hitherto Unknown, Found at Paraguay, and Deposited in the Cabinet of Natural History at Madrid. They were really into long titles back then. <laughs> Monthly Magazine was a literary journal that published general news, anecdotes, wedding announcements, death notices, original poetry. This issue included one by Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge called On a Late Connubial Rupture in High Life 
and items of interest like the natural history piece that stopped Thomas Jefferson in his tracks. It's easy to picture the new vice president grasping the publication, wide-eyed, dumbfounded, flipping back and forth between pages 637 and 638, taking in everything written by the young French naturalist Georges Cuvier. It was merely an abstract of a longer article, but it featured a full-page engraving of the creature's enormous skeletal remains. Obviously, this monstrosity was related to the megalonyx. Because of its size, Cuvier had named it Megatherium Americanum, Great Beast of the Americas. When on all fours, it was 12 feet long, minus its tail, which was missing from this skeleton, and six feet high. Reared up, the massive five-ton animal stood 20 feet tall. There are several circumstances which lead to a supposition that our megalonyx may have been the same animal with this, Jefferson later wrote to John Stewart. There are others which still induce us to class him with the lion. Their gargantuan Paraguayan, however, was not a lion. It was not even a carnivore. Indeed, indeed wrote Jefferson, it is classed with the sloth, anteater, etc., which are not of the carnivorous kinds. Let's take a quick look at the, at the illustrations because we're already talking about some of them. Um, on that second page, the lower one, that's what Jefferson held in his hand in that bookshop in Philadelphia. That's the illustration from Monthly Magazine and British Register for 1796. Um, what's on the cover page is most of what was done for Transactions magazine, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Then on the very next page, on the last page, you can see the actual creature, the megatherium now, not the megalonyx, because there are only a few bones and claws of the megalonyx. But that actual large creature that I described that would almost fill up this room, I mean lengthwise, um, that's it right there. And it's kind of hard to, to tell from the size. Uh, from They don't give you a, uh, you should have put a man standing next to this and you'd be able to see. But it's hard to tell how monstrous this thing uh, really was. Actually, the megatherium described by Cuvier was not even from Paraguay although this mistake was later repeated by scientists and historians alike. It had been found instead in Argentina, a hundred feet beneath the sandy bank of the Rio Luján, 65 kilometers west of Buenos Aires. Nearby sat the village of Luján itself, a litter crossover point that, according to legend, had been founded when Dominican friars carting a statue of the Virgin Mary found themselves and their sacred charge impossibly mired. Taking this hindrance as a sign from on high, the Dominicans established the settlement. Years later, in 1787, another Dominican, Manuel Torres, discovered the amazingly well-preserved skeleton. He excavated it, carefully packed it in seven large crates, and accompanied it to Buenos Aires. From that port, the megatherium remains sailed off to Spain and their final destina destination, the Royal Cabinet of Natural History in Madrid. Evidently, Jefferson's theories regarding megalonyx's existence would have found favor in Spanish royal circles. Megatherium's arrival in Spain excited such curiosity 
that the king ordered his colonial authorities of the Viceroyalty of La Plata to procure another individual alive or at least stuffed. Once in the Spanish capital, the Argentine creature came under the able care of Juan Bautista Bru de Ramon, a native of Valencia who had since childhood dedicated himself to illustration. Bru in 1777 had been named the cabinet's anatomical painter and chief dissectionist. Bru immediately articulated and mounted the surprisingly large skeletal frame. He also illustrated the specimen, both whole and its separate parts, and these detailed drawings were engraved for a dissertation he planned to prepare. Years later, in 1796, a French official named Philippe Rose Rumet took notice of Bru's beautifully mounted monstrosity, crouching as if prepared to strike. That's what it looks like to me, and that's the mounting done by Bru, that last photograph. Acquired a set of the as yet unpublished plates and sent them to the National Institute in Paris. Enter Georges Cuvier, born in Montebillard, then a French-speaking Protestant town in Württemberg. Georges Leopold Nicolas Frédéric Cuvier was destined to become a naturalist. As a youngster, he was given the works of Buffon and Swiss botanist Linnaeus to study. While still a teenager, legend has it, Cuvier had committed many of Buffon's essays to memory. After studying in Stuttgart for four years, he was made assistant to the professor of comparative anatomy at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, which at the time boasted the world's greatest natural history collection. The year was 1795. Cuvier was only 26 years old. That same year, the National Institute was founded in the French capital, and Cuvier was elected to its Academy of Sciences. He delivered his first paper on paleontology in April of 1796. Shortly thereafter, Cuvier was presented with the five folio-sized plates picked up by Rumet and asked to prepare a report. Thus it was that a budding French paleontologist came to analyze and announced to the world in print the remains of a South American creature that had been illustrated by a Spaniard. Cuvier's study ran to approximately 1,500 words. He identified the megatherium as an edentate, meaning it was a mammal with few or no teeth related to sloths and armadillos, and stated that most likely it was extinct. It adds to the numerous facts that tell us that the animals of the ancient world, he wrote, all differ from those we see on earth today, for it is scarcely probable that if this animal still existed, such a remarkable species could hitherto have escaped the researches of naturalists. This essay, only Cuvier's second in the new science of fossil anatomy, was summarized that same year, 1796, for Monthly Magazine, accompanied by a crudely produced version of one of the original engravings. What a circuitous journey had been taken by this early paleontological information from the town of Lujan to Buenos Aires to Madrid to Paris to London to Philadelphia and the hands of Thomas Jefferson. Chagrined but no doubt grateful to have encountered Cuvier's account, Jefferson hastily modified his megalonyx paper. He scratched out the sections that unequivocally identified it as lion-like, substituting instead vague references of it being an animal of the clawed kind. He also added a proscript which noted the similarities between his brute and Cuvier's giant ground sloth, 
but concluded that positive identification must await the unearthing of more of Megalonyx's skeleton, most notably its teeth. It may be better in the meantime, wrote Jefferson, to keep up the difference of name. While Jefferson sat in the presiding chair, his paper on the Megalonyx was read aloud at the March 10th gathering of the American Philosophical Society by Jonathan Williams, one of the organization's secretaries. At the same meeting, Jefferson presented the society with that, the carefully collected Greenbrier County bones. These were in turn handed over to Charles Wilson Peale, the portrait painter and naturalist who was one of the society's curators, with instructions that he find proper illustrators. The fossils were beautifully drawn in chalk by William S. Jacobs, a young Belgian medical student, and Titian Peel, one of Charles Wilson Peel's sons who fell victim to the city's yellow fever epidemic the very next year. These were then painstakingly engraved for transactions by James Aiken. And that's what you're looking at at the very first page. The job of properly describing what Thomas Jefferson had collected, however, fell to Dr. Caspar Wister, the Society's authority on fossilized bones. This paper is a model of cautious, accurate scientific description and inference, wrote Professor George Gaylord Simpson, an achievement almost incredible in view of the paleontological naivete of his associates and the lack of comparative materials. The objective part of the paper is so clear, complete, and correct that it has never been significantly bettered for the same or similar objects. From the radius and ulna, he concluded that the palm of the hand would present inward, not downwards or backwards. He observed that among living mammals, the megalonyx was most clearly, was most nearly comparable to the sloth, yet quite distinct. Wister also observed that the animal from Virginia was not the same as the megatherium. When completed, Wister's concise six-page analysis was published in volume four of Transactions, the same issue that included Jefferson's Megalonyx memoir. This volume finally saw the light of day in 1799, two years after Jefferson's presentation. Dr. Wister's piece, a description of the bones deposited by the president in the Museum of the Society and represented in the annex plates, appeared as number 76, the edition's very last article. Curiously, none of the modern scholars who have written about Jefferson and the megalonics commented on this fact. From this evidence alone, however, it seems obvious that the society delayed publication in order to include Wister's detailed analysis. Nonetheless, Jefferson's paleontological efforts placed him amongst that science's first practitioners. The word paleontology, in fact, was not coined until 1838. The question is, where exactly to place Jefferson's work in the fledgling discipline. As noted above, one 20th century paleontologist dubbed Jefferson's Megalonyx memoir the, sig the signal gun of American paleontology. He also called Jefferson the father of the science. This was Henry Fairfield Osborne, professor of biology and zoology at Columbia University, writing in 1929 near the end of his very long career. An organizational genius for whom science was a great adventure, Osborne, according to Keith Thompson, who was here as a fellow, became known for proposing wrong-headed ideas about evolution and eugenics. On the other hand, George Gaylord Simpson, 
who taught zoology at Columbia to later generations and is considered by experts the 20th century's leading paleontologist, was very critical of Jefferson's standing in the science. Thomas Jefferson has become a fabulous figure to paleontologists, Simpson wrote in 1942 for the American Philosophical Society, few of whom known, know what he really did, but most of whom consider him as the father or founder of vertebrate paleontology in America. It should not be considered iconoclastic to state that he was not a vertebrate paleontology in any reasonable sense of the words, that he never collected a fossil or gave one a technical name, and that his scientific contributions were negligible or retrogressive. Jefferson himself was perfectly aware that he had no accomplishments as a student of paleontology or as a research scientist, and in saying so, one is not rejecting any pretensions of his, merely attacking a subsequent false legend. Interestingly, Simpson, who was known for being a friendless curmudgeon <laughs> about Columbia University, placed Caspar Wister first in the long roster of American vertebrate paleontologists and called Wister's megalonics piece the first technical study of professional quality to be written by an American. It was professional, no question, just like, but just like Jefferson in this instance, Wister had not collected the bones and claws and had not assigned them technical names. Does that mean that Wister, uh, his idol evidently, was also not a paleontologist? Begrudgingly, Simpson granted that Jefferson was an important figure in the rise of vertebrate paleontology and identified his two contributions to the, f to the field. He helped to make paleontology a respectful and honored pursuit, and he was largely instrumental in bringing together the materials necessary for its advancement. Well-reasoned and accurate, this assertion is perhaps one that even Jefferson could agree with. Perhaps two Frenchmen should have the last words. After Jefferson's death in 1826, Georges Cuvier, by then France's most renowned scientist, praised the Virginians' enlightened love for the sciences and broad knowledge of scientific subjects to which he has made notable contributions. Another French scientist, Anselm Desmarest, gave the massive Virginia ground sloth the technical name by which it is known today, Megalonyx Jeffersoni, Jefferson's Great Claw. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the megalonics and Jefferson's interest in natural history, you can check out the website of the American Philosophical Society where Jefferson was president in the early 1800s. And you can also check out Rick Britton's book, Thomas Jefferson, a Monticello Sampler, published in 2008 and available in our online shop at monticello.org.